attributes divine. Bill McDonald had a little book entitled The Wonders of God. Maybe he was thinking of that hymn or um, probably more specifically thinking of scripture. And so he had gone through and talked about the wonders of God in, in creation and that when you would look at the various aspects of God's wonderful creation that you could see his fingerprints. I was thinking of the the honeybee this morning. I've been thinking for honeybee for a few days. I have a friend who's a beekeeper and he loves uh, loves telling people about the the wonders of the honeybee. I thought I wonder is honey mentioned that often in scripture? Well actually it is. This was the land. The land was flowing with milk and honey. Isaiah talked about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son and his food. Do you remember what his food would be? He would eat. Uh, no, no, no. This is John the Baptist, locusts and honey. That was his food. The uh, prophecy concerning uh, Isaiah, what he was talking about, he was talking about the virgin conceiving, uh, this is the Lord Jesus, and his food would be butter and honey. Okay, so uh, honey is a major, uh, major idea in Scripture. David said that the word of God uh, was to him like honey, sweeter than honey. He loved the, the word of God. He loved to think about the word of God. And so, you know, just some of the uh, you know, as you think about the wonders of creation, you think about honeybees. Does anybody know how many eggs a queen honeybee lays a day? Does anybody know? Would anybody like to take a guess at how many eggs a queen honeybee lays every day? Uh, how many? Yeah, if she lays a thousand, she actually is uh, getting replaced. Yeah, she's out of basically out of a job. You're having trouble with bees right now. Yeah, a healthy a healthy queen will lay somewhere between two thousand and three thousand eggs a day. Okay, and when she drops down to a thousand, they uh, replace her. Okay, yeah, no wonder uh, the bees, the hive, they know that. Uh, it's interesting that. Uh, when the hive makes a new queen, uh, it's not a different egg. It's the same egg. It's the same egg that makes the worker bees, that makes the drones, that makes the queen. It's it's the same egg. It's the same genetics, they say. The only difference for the queen uh, is what she eats. That's what determines she's going to be a queen. So the drone bees make a, what they call a royal jelly, and they feed this to these 15 eggs or so, and and they grow a queen because of the food she eats. You think, wow, uh, man, that's a spiritual application. What's the difference between uh, what uh, Christians who are doing well and Christians who aren't doing well? It's not the life within. The life within is exactly the same. It's probably what they're eating, I would suspect, right? And so this concept, I mean, these are our, our, our spiritual uh, spiritual lessons, even in God's uh, wonderful creation. And so today I want to uh, just kind of uh, move through the Word of God, thinking about how David had this love for Scripture. To him it was a living book. 
Okay? It was living, it was appealing, it was alive. And so we want to gather some ideas together, just as we meander through the Old Testament, and then we're going to come eventually to a passage we know quite well, and we're going to use some of the ideas that we've thought about to help us interpret this passage in Luke chapter 2. Uh, this passage that's called the uh, Christmas story, a passage we know well. And so we want to begin in uh, Genesis chapter 35. And, you know, because what we're doing is we're just uh, simply applying the principle uh, that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And, and trust that as we do this, that, that our love for the uh, written word will increase, because as our love for the written word increases, no doubt our love for the living word increases. Because, hey, let's make sure we understand that the Lord Jesus isn't, in in a very real way, no one outside of his word. Yes, we can see him uh, in creation, but his revelation in his word, this is how God seeks to, by the Spirit, reveal Christ to us, and so the importance of the word of God. So in Genesis chapter 35, Verse 16 says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. Then the parenthesis says, notice, that is Bethlehem. You remember, we remember Bethlehem, Ephrata. We actually remember that expression. So Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Okay? So this is not random stuff. Uh, if I was to say to you, how does this passage make you think of Jesus? How does this passage make us think of the Lord Jesus? Uh, what, would you might, what might you say to that? A Calvary? Okay, because childbirth. Okay, good. Uh, Benjamin, yes. Uh, childbirth and the fact that he had two names, right? His mother named him and his father named him. Okay, and so uh, who has in, the, uh, in their side margin what the two names meant? Benoni, which is what his mother called him, son of my sorrow, okay, son of my sorrow, and then Benjamin is what his dad called him, and what does that mean? Son of my right hand. Who does that make us think of? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's part of the aspect. And now listen, this is important because... Uh, this is why uh, Jewish scholars always struggled with there being just one Messiah, right? They, they, they did struggle with that, that there would be just one Messiah. They always thought, like, there must be two, one that would come and suffer uh, and die, and then one who would come and reign. And so this was a struggle for them. So we have here uh, introduced, uh, introducing this idea of the Lord Jesus in Benjamin, and then we have sort of, it seems like it's a bit of an afterthought, but connected with Bethlehem, we have the, here it says, the Tower of Eder, okay? So we want to think about that. We want to gather that as a thought and then move forward. All right, turn to uh, Leviticus 
chapter 25. Who would say that Leviticus is their favorite book? Yeah, I doubt anybody. Maybe uh, maybe somebody would, but it's definitely tough to, to work through. But in chapter 25 is a couple of incredible principles in God's economy. Uh, one was the uh, year of Jubilee. That's eight verse 8 through to verse 17. And this was the idea that every 50 years, all debt was forgiven, right? All debt was forgiven in Israel. Uh, every 50 years, the idea that uh, at least everybody once in their life would experience the year of Jubilee, when all debt was forgiven. Okay, so that's, that's the year of Jubilee. Then uh, we have the redemption of property. Okay, and this is verse 23 through, uh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe till through to verse 34. But we don't want to think about all of that. We don't want to read that whole passage. But this was the idea that, uh, or this was the principle that would protect Israel from uh, that terrible thing called inflation. Is inflation... A problem? Uh, skilled economists say that will be the breaking of the American economy eventually. Well, the Canadian economy too, that event eventually inflation will destroy a nation. Uh, that's what they say. I mean, you say, well, I don't believe it. So well, that's fine. But, but God's economy was built the opposite of that. It, in fact, not did things inflate, they actually came down in value, right? That they were worth more in year one than they were in year 50. That you could buy a piece of property from somebody, but the worth of the property was determined uh, by the year of Jubilee. Because at the year of Jubilee, everything, all debts were forgiven and all the property went back to its rightful owner. This is how God's economy worked. And so, yes, if you got into uh, a financial difficulty, you could sell your property and and uh, somebody could redeem it for you potentially and buy your property back, help you out a family member. So there was lots of, lots of stories about that in the Bible. The whole book of Ruth is about redemption. Okay? And so uh, here in Leviticus, God is laying out his principles of, of, of redeeming property. Okay, that's the concept. And he talks about, uh, verse 29, if a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year, he may redeem it. But if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall become permanently, shall belong permanently to him who bought it. Throughout his generations, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. So if there was a house in a walled city, that actually could change ownership. Right? Somebody could purchase it, and it didn't go back in the year of Jubilee. But then it goes on to say, However, the houses of villages which have no wall around them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the year of Jubilee. So if it was in an unwalled city, no matter who owned it, in the year of Jubilee, it went back to its rightful owner. So we'll say, well, that's not hard to understand, right? We're tracking with that. So we have Bethlehem, and we have the 
the Tower of Eder in Genesis chapter 35, and here we have just some of the rules concerning property, ownership of property. Uh, we can think of practically how, uh, how useful God's uh, economy would be uh, or is in comparison to what we see today. And so we, we see that, we say, okay, that's not hard, let's, let's move on from there. So the uh, next passage that we want to turn to is in... Second uh, Samuel, Second uh, Samuel, chapter nineteen. Now we know more about. David, probably than any uh, Old Testament character, it would be nearly impossible to overemphasize his importance. Um, uh, but here is a, an event directly from his life after uh, his son Absalom has been uh, has been executed, and so uh, David comes back uh, to to Jerusalem, and in verse thirty-one of chapter nineteen. Uh, he meets Barzillai. Now, Barzillai, as you remember, was a man who showed David kindness when he was leaving. Okay, He brought a bunch of uh, food and resources, animals, gifts for the king uh, to help him on his way. And so David was very grateful for the kindness that Barzillai had shown to David. And so now when he came back to power, okay, when he came back to power, or uh, he was come back to Jerusalem, uh, he meets Barzillai. And so, uh, so he says to Barzillai, uh, come, uh, come live with me. Uh, or verse 33, he says, the king said to Barzillai, come across with me and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again, that I may, I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. Notice this. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good to you. Okay, so now we're introduced to this uh, character, Chimham. And so again, the point is that uh, these are tracts of scripture. And so we read them, and I'm not sure what we think of them, but we know this, nothing in the Bible is random. You know, things are connected. Now, they're not often connected like how we'd like to see them, like say in a dictionary. We'd like a we like this idea of, you know, everything that has to do with redemption is under R, right? You know, it's right there. It's in alphabetical order, and we can work through it. Well, that's not how the scriptures are laid out. They're, uh, it's interpreting, uh, uh, reading, comparing scripture with scripture, bringing these stories together to give this book life. And so now we're, as we say, introduced to Chimham. Uh, David wants to show Barzillai honor for what he had done. Barzillai says, hey, listen, quite honestly, I'm at the end of my life. 
I got everything I need. Why don't you take maybe his son? We're not sure, but his servant, Chim Ham, he says, you take him with you. Okay, you take him with you and you show him honor. Okay, and we say, well, uh, is that it for Chim Ham? Well, actually not. We, we hear of Chim Ham again. We read of him. And so that's over, uh, that's over in uh, Jeremiah. Turn over to Jeremiah uh, 41. And so Jeremiah 41, this is uh, uh, the prophet warning, warning the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, he's saying, you know, you shouldn't. Uh, flee to Egypt, you should stay, don't go. Uh, he's continually warning them that God has said, turn yourself over to the, to the Syrians and um, God will protect you, but they don't want to hear that. And so they, they actually want to leave and go to Egypt. And so uh, Jeremiah goes with them. And so it says in verse 17 of verse 41, and they departed and dwelt in the inn or habitation, the inn of Chimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt. And so now we're introduced to Chimham again. This is a long time later, but now, now added to the story is that uh, he had a house, an inn, a habitation in Bethlehem. And so what we take from that is that uh, potentially the honor that David was to show to Chimham and to his family was uh, most likely he gave, most likely David gave the family home to Chimham. Because, you know, David had a family home in Bethlehem, right? I mean, that's where da David was from. Now, David didn't live in Bethlehem. He lived in Jerusalem, right? I mean, he, uh, he had a family home in Bethlehem, but he actually lived in, in Jerusalem. That's where his palace was. And so he had this family home. You think, well, would he have uh, uh, given it to Chimham to, to honor, to show honor? That's not how life works, is it? Say, well, uh, Chimham had lots of money. He already, his Barzilli, I said, hey, we got no shortage of funds. Don't worry about us. We don't need any money. Uh, you remember in the story of Esther when, uh, you know, Haman came in. Remember in Mordecai, I wouldn't bow to Haman, and then the king said to, to Haman, he said, hey, if I wanted to show honor to a person, what would I do? And so you remember uh, uh, Haman, he thought the king was talking about himself. And so he says, well, well this is what I would do, is I would um, get, a, get a horse that the king has rode on, get a robe that the king has worn, that everybody knows that, and put this robe on, on this man and put uh, put the man on the horse, the king's horse, and then have a servant lead them through the street and um, and point to this man riding on the horse. Here's a here's a man the king wants to honor. And so that kind of principle it certainly exists. And so I suspect that what's happened is uh, David gave the family home to Jimham in Bethlehem. And so when Chimham lived there all those years, hey, people were aware that this is a man that the king desires to honor. He's given him his family home. 
But now we fast forward years later, and uh, it's no longer gone back. Even though it wasn't in an unwalled city, it's not gone back to the family of David. It's actually stayed in Chimham's family, and it's become an inn associated with his name. So we say, well, I wonder, uh, would it be possible that, that um, Chimham and his family never honored the year of Jubilee? Well, we say, for sure that's true, because it doesn't exist in Israel today. So they have for a long time quit honoring these principles, the principles of Scripture. And so it seems like now it's something different. It's not the house, not no longer David's home. Uh, it's become Chimham's habitation or his inn. So we have that. So let's um, turn over to uh, the book of Micah. Micah, of course, is famous for, you know, the... Uh, verse in chapter 5, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who, this is verse 2, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And that's the verse we're most familiar with in Micah's, Micah's prophecy uh, concerning uh, the coming of the Lord. Well, uh, we want to read a verse in, in, in chapter 4. Uh, Micah chapter 4. Verse 8. And you, it says, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former... Dominion shall come, the kingdom, the daughter of Jerusalem. And so does anybody have in their side margin anything for uh, the beginning, O tower of the flock? Does anybody have a different translation? House? House of what? Eater? Yeah? And it is. It's the same, it's the same word. It's uh, directly connected to what we read in Genesis chapter 35. It's the, it's the same, the Tower of Eder, that whatever uh, Jacob was talking about, there was this tower that was just outside of Bethlehem. Okay, it was just a bit outside of Bethlehem. It was on the road to Bethlehem. It was just in the outside of it. And now here, Micah, uh, and you know, Jewish scholars would take this verse and, and predict, they, they predicted that the very place that the Messiah would reveal himself was at the Tower of Eder. That this was a physical place, we know that. I mean, we got that from Genesis chapter 35. We're still talking about it here. Micah's referring to it. And so again, Jewish scholars believe that, that the Messiah would physically reveal himself at the Tower of Eder, which is just outside of Bethlehem. So uh, let's turn to Luke chapter uh, 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. That's a story we're very familiar with. That's the uh, Christmas story. Uh, Joseph, Mary, uh, descendants of David. In fact, we we know that we have their genealogies, right? We have uh, Joseph's genealogy in uh, Matthew, and we have uh, Mary's genealogy in Luke. Okay, and so uh, trivia. What is the first name as you work backward from Joseph and you work backward from Mary? What is the first name that they both have in common? Think about that. As you work back from Joseph, which is Matthew chapter 1, and you work back from Mary, which is Luke chapter 4, what is the first name that they have in common? It's David, right? David, right? The uh, Joseph was a descendant, David, Solomon, okay? That's who Joseph descended from, David through Solomon. And Mary uh, was David through Nathan. And so they said, well, what's the significance? Well, there's huge significance because in uh, Joseph's genealogy, there came a point when the Lord Jesus cursed that line and said, never would a king from the line of Solomon sit on the throne of Israel. You remember the Jeconiah curse. And so he said, well, how would he get around that? Because we know the Lord Jesus was a descendant of David. Well, he got around it because it was not through Solomon and not through that line, but actually through Mary's line was his access to the throne. So the Lord Jesus... Uh, when, when, um, when his mother and father, his earthly father, his mother come to Bethlehem, what we're reading about here, uh, I mean, we, we, we rejoice in the story. We think about uh, it is the Christmas story. Uh, I don't know how, many, how much we, we, we question the things we're reading here. Like, for instance, how come Joseph and Mary, direct descendants of David, how come they didn't have a place in Bethlehem? They were uh, descendants of Boaz. Did Boaz own, own any property in Bethlehem? Well, it seemed like he owned the whole thing, right? I mean, he was a rich man. And, and so he was, uh, he was in their genealogy. So it was certainly in the family. And, and so as we read through uh, even the kingship of David, he was often going back to Bethlehem and doing things with the family. And, uh, and so there's lots of connections. So when we come to, uh, come to this passage in Luke chapter 2, we say, uh, what's really happening here? How come, how come they, they don't have a place to call their own? 
Hey, but even more than that, even more than that, it says they found no place for him in the inn. Who owned that inn? According to the Lord, who do you think owned it? Well, I would suggest that the Lord Jesus himself owned that inn. It should have been in the family. It should have still been in the family because it was an unwalled city. So at the year of Jubilee, even though uh, potentially Chimham had been shown honor by David to have that in, it should have still gone back to the family. And so um, this is what John, you know, John says in his first chapter uh, in talking about the Lord Jesus, he says, he came unto his own things and his own people received him not. Hey, the Lord Jesus did own. When we often say he had no place to, to lay his head, and that's true, but that's because men had taken that away from him. The inn uh, was probably his family home. And so the story goes, they came to the inn, uh, and they couldn't find entrance to what would have been his own home. And, and so then it goes on to say that, uh, verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. The word is a stall, uh, because there was no room for them in the inn. And so uh, the Christmas tradition is that uh, when there's no room in the inn, uh, that he was born in a barn. And we say, well, is that true? I mean, we've seen the pictures, we've seen the nativity scenes, and uh, we see the animals, and we wonder, well, is that really true? Is that what happened? Let's read the next section. It says, now there were, in the same country, this is verse 8, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Why shepherds? Uh, Alfred Eidersheim uh, makes the point that uh, these shepherds wouldn't have been shepherds as we think of shepherds. He said they would have been rabbinical. Uh, that the flocks that they would have been watching in the fields of Bethlehem, Bethlehem was only five, less than five miles south of the city of Jerusalem, 
And one of the main requirements of uh, the temple in Jerusalem was sacrifices. And so Alfred Eidersheim says uh, that in, uh, historically, that in A.D. 66, for instance, this would be four years before the temple was razed, that uh, more than 260,000 lambs died in the week of Passover. I mean, that's a lot of lambs, more than. I think, uh, yeah, maybe it's uh, 256,000, something like 260,000, somewhere around there. And, and so uh, one of the laws for sacrifice was that if you had to come from a long distance to Passover, you could sell your lamb at home, and then when you got to Jerusalem, you could take the money that you brought and you could purchase a lamb. And so uh, let me say, well, that's what was happening. And so where were these perfect, and that's the point, these lambs would have had to have been perfect, where would they have been coming from? Well, they would have been coming from these shepherds that we're reading about right here. Uh, so they, more than any other in Bethlehem, would have been, been aware of the significance of the Lamb of God coming into the world. I mean, this was um, their life, raising uh, shepherds are raising sheep for uh, sacrifice. And so the Lord appears to them and, and talks to them. The angel of the Lord appears to them and talks to them about this sign. And what would the sign be? That the babe would be wrapped in swaddling claws, lying in a stall. I would suggest to you, many others believe this, that this was none other than the Tower of Eder that this was the tower that they protected the flock from, and that the swaddling bands would have been accessible because the shepherds knew that, that these sheep that they would raise, they had to be perfect, flawless. You know, my uh, grandfather raised purebred sheep most of his life, and uh, if a sheep got a scar... You know, it would turn the wool black there. It would be a black speck where there was a cut, you know, a scar on their wool. And so they were real careful about that. And, of course, when they would uh, uh, show their sheep, they wanted them to be perfect or as near perfect as they could. Uh, of course, they were always, I remember my grandfather always saying that uh, they were thankful for uh, what they call Lady Clairol because they could work with that and change the black wool white. Uh, and the judges couldn't see that, but that's not the case here. These lambs had to be perfect. And so no doubt they were using the swaddling bands to protect those lambs, tens of thousands that were being born. And so when Joseph came with his wife, betrothed wife Mary to the inn that was should have been in the family, should have been his, should have been Mary's, should have been Christ. They found no room for him. He didn't immediately uh, go to the barn. I don't believe that. Joseph was a devout Jew. I mean, if you would learn anything from reading the Old Testament, uh, the Jews were about cleanliness and keeping things clean. And so, in fact, he didn't go down into the stall. 
to the barn, he would seem went to the Tower of Eder, which is where it was prophesied in Micah's where the Savior would come into the world. And so in the Tower of Eder, uh, Joseph had everything that he would need to protect, swaddle the baby, and to see Mary bring the Savior into the world. And so uh, as we read this story, and we say, and compare uh, Scripture with Scripture, we, I, I trust we we come to the point we say nothing is random in the Word of God. It's all there for a purpose. And uh, we would like it to come alive in our lives. We would like to uh, understand more of the significance of uh, the renown of the birth of the Lord Jesus. That this was, this was life-changing for these people. Hey, the shepherds that... Uh, they somehow caught the significance of this. They uh, uh, came, it says, in haste and, and worshipped the Lord. They saw the spiritual significance. Uh, why? Well, because they were uh, connected to the Old Testament. They knew about the, the laws. They knew about sacrifice. They knew about the significance of all these things. And it would have been very invigorating. It was invigorating to them to say, well, I would like the word of God to somehow invigorate me and and somehow the word of God to come alive in my life and come to the point where I, when I read the word of God, say that nothing in it is random. It's all there written for a purpose. And so um, I hope that this morning, you can say the same thing, that we want to, uh, like the psalmist, uh, be able to say that, that the word of God is uh, honey to our lips. It's a thrill to read the word of God and to see Christ uh, in the scriptures. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're uh, grateful for your word this morning. We're thankful for um, how your word in every way points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we're grateful for his humble beginnings. That, Father, he could have demanded so much more, even in his birth. And yet, as we've been reminded, he uh, came unto his own things, his own people. They did not receive him. But, Father, we remember the rest of the story that as many as did receive him to them, you gave the right to be called your children. And so we're grateful this morning, Father, for the opportunity to reflect on your words, uh, to have, we trust that your word by your spirit point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we just pray a blessing in the life of each your dear children that are here this morning, each family that's represented, we pray in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.